of my father and his egg, the fact that he made the world's largest jeweled egg. I suppose the passion and interest in that came first. The Kaczynski family business is something that I grew up with. There were several dentists um, whose jobs were literally just to pull out gold teeth. She lives there for eight years and they are incredibly productive. As soon as she gets there, really, she gets out all her old manuscripts. Full draft, really, of um, what's to become Sense and Sensibility, what's to become Pride and Prejudice. Nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s, so it could not possibly have been right. the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. Welcome to the first episode of the second series of History Gems, where fans of the Netflix film The Dig are in for a treat. In this episode, we'll be exploring the jewels uncovered in one of the most exciting archaeological discoveries of all time, the Anglo-Saxon ship burial at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk. I'm very lucky to be joined today by Dr Sue Brunning, who works as the curator of the European Early Medieval and Sutton Hoo collections at the British Museum. One that's really nice to talk about because it's such a great moment in the film is the discovery of the first piece of gold from the ship burial. Um, and there's a really wonderful scene where the archaeologist Peggy Pickett discovers that. And that's absolutely what happens in real life as well. Peggy Pickett was the person that was lucky enough to find that first piece of gold in the burial. When light is transmitted, particularly on the upper corners, which kind of been cut into this faceted Y shape and really slots on perfectly, a bit like kind of Krypton factor, really beautifully kind of just all slots onto the corners. When light is transmitted onto that, it kind of bends through the garnet and acts like a prism. And the effect that that has is that it seems as if the garnets have kind of ignited from inside. Sue specialises in early Anglo-Saxon material culture and has a special interest in the Sutton Hoo which I'm really looking forward to hearing more about. Hi, Sue, and welcome to History Gems. I've been so looking forward to chatting to you for ages, so I'm really pleased that you were able to join me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Great pleasure. Now, the story of the Sutton Hoo discovery has been highlighted recently in the brilliant Netflix film, The Dig, and it's a truly extraordinary and actually completely unique archaeological discovery. So I thought it'd be good if you wouldn't mind. Could we just start by, sorry, could you just start by telling us a little bit about the Sutton Hoo and putting it into context for us? Yeah, of course. So, um, the, the site of Sutton Hoo is in Suffolk in eastern England, near to the modern town of Woodbridge. And in the sort of late 7th to early 7th centuries, a series of burial mounds was constructed there. And in 1939, which is the um, excavation that's, that's shown in the dig, the largest mound was excavated and that was found to contain a 27 metre long ship. And in the middle of the ship was a burial chamber and inside the burial chamber was just a, a, a complete cacophony of outstanding artefacts. And, and those are the artefacts, of course, that, that I look after at the British Museum. And this included things like um, uh, war gear decorated with golden garnets, uh, dress accessories decorated in much the same way. There was um, deluxe feasting equipment, so enormous drinking horns with silver gilt fittings, uh, cups, cauldrons, that sort of thing. 
silverware that had come all the way from the Eastern Mediterranean, the Byzantine Empire, so I travelled quite far, and also the things that you don't see in the museum, which are, are surviving only in fragments, but uh, were equally sumptuous, were a series of, of great textiles, some of which probably came from Syria. Uh, but obviously the most the most famous thing, apart from all of the wonderful golden garnet work, is that iconic helmet, which is, you know, really, really um, definitive of, of Sutton Hoo. And uh, this, this burial, because of the quality of those artefacts, the quantity of them, the sheer number of them that were there, and the amount of labour that went into creating the burial, the fact that it's uh, a ship that's been dragged up a hill from a river uh, and, and buried beneath a huge burial mound, all of these things combined to, to show us that what we're looking at here is probably the burial of a, of a very significant person in the community, and perhaps a king of the local kingdom at that time of, of East Anglia. Um, but the other thing to say about Sutton Hoo is that it really did transform our understanding of this early medieval period in England at this time. And, you know, the received wisdom is that that we had a, a, a significant economic, social, cultural decline after the Roman um, period of, of rule. This was no longer a cosmopolitan place that was plugged into the wider world. It became sort of quite insular and quite isolated. But this rather old-fashioned view changed as soon as the objects started coming out of the ground at Sutton Hoo, and we were shown this this world of you know incredible artistic achievements and creativity, and those far-reaching um, connections with the wider world that I mentioned, you know, all the way over to the Eastern Mediterranean, the Middle East, to, to Southern Asia, um, and these really complex belief systems and cosmologies at the time as well. And um, quite apart from all of that, you know, the, this immense personal wealth and power that was enjoyed by some and showing us really that those those images that we had from poems like like Beowulf and images in, in literature like Bede of these great feasting halls with warriors decked out in glittering war gear, these things were not really a myth. They were actually, um, actually part of that world. That's uh, completely fascinating. And uh, I mean, you've talked about the fact that these these objects were coming from from all over the world and was that was that a surprise so did we did we realize that you know these sorts of items were available in England at this time prior to the Sutton Hoo discovery at all? I think there were glimpses of these sorts of things before Sutton Hoo, um, there was there were a couple of other what we call princely burials, so these very high status burials that had been discovered before. There's one at the British Museum from a place called Taplow in Buckinghamshire, um, not quite of the magnitude of Sutton Hoo, but it contained some similar types of artefacts. Um, but really, it was Sutton Hoo that 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 really showed you know the the extent of these of these things and also the fact that it was excavated in the early 20th century with with slightly more sophisticated archaeological methods that that much more material was recovered and then analyzed in a more sort of sophisticated and and um, systematic way than than those 19th century excavations done by antiquarians so we were able to glean just that much more information and subject that material to to more sort of scientific techniques and things like that which which started to reveal the fact that these garnets for example uh, could be traced chemically to to southern Asia um, and the artistic analysis that that showed that this material from um, the Byzantine Empire you know could could be traced back to there as well so it really did uh, uh, confirm and enhance what we what we sort of had only glimpses of beforehand mm, that's I mean that's so exciting and you've talked about you've touched on um, the fact that there were lots of these artifacts discovered so I'm just interested to know how many artifacts were discovered. Oh gosh, well it it really depends on on how you uh, number it. So there's there's well over a thousand um, objects from the ship burial that are registered uh, to the museum's collections, but lots of those 
tell their register. So lots of them are kind of fragments. Um, but certainly the, the main body of material that, that came from the ship burial is on display at the museum, but there's lots of uh, material also in storage just from that one ship burial. And I should say actually that, that it's not just the ship burial at Sutton Hoo, there's several other burial mounds there. Um, and also another entire cemetery that was discovered there in, in 2000 when the National Trust to look after the site were um, uh, putting up their new exhibition hall. They found an entire cemetery that was about you know a few generations earlier than the mound burial. So there's lots and lots of artifacts from Sutton Hoo um, that, that, that we have at the museum and that the National Trust also have on display. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And before we move on to talking about some of the beautiful objects that were discovered in the ship, I just wanted to ask if it would have been usual for someone at this time, even you know, somebody high status, to be buried with this amount of luxury. Do we know that? So Sutton Hoo, the, the ship burial at Sutton Hoo is one of a series of as I mentioned, these princely burials that, that we have from this period. And so there have been a number of individuals buried with magnificent sort of um, chambers and grave goods, uh, as well as Sutton Hoo, but the, the ship burial rites, which is which is um, represented at Sutton Hoo actually in two burials, this, this main burial, Mound 1, but also Mound 2 was another ship burial, which unfortunately had been looted in the past, so only fragments of, of the, the wealth that was inside of there actually survived. That particular rite is incredibly rare in England. So it seems that that this was another level of, of those kinds of princely burials. And I think is one of the reasons why we think this person may have been a king. So it's it's kind of a, a souped up version of, of other types of very high status burials and, and really the pinnacle of, of that sort of furnished burial rite that we have in this period. Okay. Um, now, one of the most iconic finds, as you mentioned, was the, the helmet. But uh, can you tell us about some of the other treasures that were discovered during the excavation? Sure. So um, I think one that's really nice to talk about, because it's such a great moment in the film, is the discovery of the first piece of gold from the ship burial. Um, and there's a really wonderful scene where the archaeologist Peggy Pickett discovers that. And that's absolutely what happens in real life as well. Peggy Pickett was the person that was lucky enough to find that first piece of gold in the burial. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. And it's a really tiny um, gold pyramid um, that's inlaid with garnets and blue glass. It's it's really small. It's it's about 12 millimetres high and about 18 millimetres across the base, so really, really small. Um, and it's it's hollow underneath and has a strap um, sort of runner, so a bar that a strap could, could run through um, underneath. And we think it was probably some kind of toggle that was attached to the sword harness. It was found, uh, these there a pair of these, and they were found next door to the sword in, in the burial. And despite that tiny size, each one was inlaid with 101 garnets oh um, and eight pieces of blue glass. And then on the very top, which is flat, there's a piece of milfiori glass as well. So it's sort of like a checkerboard um, glass, flat glass inlay. And it's such a beautifully kind of neat looking little thing. This perfect little pyramid is kind of very tactile, very, it looks very kind of robust and useful as well as being very beautiful. And um, it's, it's, it's decorated in this, this um, technique, which is a very iconic technique of the early medieval period known as garnet cloisonné, which basically involves the, the inlaying of garnets um, into tiny gold cells in all different shapes and sizes. Um, but what's, what's really fascinating about this piece is that it, it looks on the surface of it quite simple. It's got a sort of geometric design on all four faces of the pyramids, um, and it looks sort of quite 
quite simple, but when you really look closely at it, it's actually the, the design of it is completely staggering. The garnets have been actually cut to kind of flow round the corners of the pyramid. So on each of those long sides of the garnet, you can see that they've been cut in a faceted shape that enables them to kind of flow round those corners. They, they wrap around the, the pyramid itself. So it's, it's really incredible. And what actually happens because of the way that they've been cut is that when light is transmitted, particularly on the upper corners, which have kind of been cut into this faceted Y shape and really slots on perfectly, a bit like kind of Krypton Factor, really beautifully kind of just all slots onto the corners. When light is transmitted onto that, it kind of bends through the garnet and acts like a prism. And the effect that that has is that it seems as if the garnets have kind of ignited from inside so it looks like the the pyramid is kind of glowing from within so as if there's some kind of fire or light inside of it almost like a little volcano because of the way that it's shaped so it really is absolutely uh, amazing this this optical effect that has been created by the way that the gems have been cut um but also from that there's kind of rhythm and texture to the way that the 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 design has been laid out in that underneath the garnets on the flat faces of the pyramid, there are these waffly foils, which creates this kind of textural um, effect. But also the maker has selected garnets of different colours as well. So around the base of the pyramid, you have orangey coloured garnets, uh, which have a different ke chemical um, composition to the other garnets which have a redder or a more purpley colour. So they've been deliberately selected in order to create these colour contrasts across the surface, which is on something so tiny as I've mentioned, you know, it's, it's just 12 millimetres high. It's it's absolutely staggering. So it's one of these examples of something that on the surface looks quite quite simple, but when you really look at it, it's it's just absolutely ingenious the way that it's been made just sounds absolutely beautiful and a, a real sort of treasure and would that sort of piece been something that would have been perhaps fairly typical for the period or is that something that really would have been you know um the creme de the the creme de la creme in terms of craftsmanship and um and, and you yes. know only available to the very um wealthiest of society yeah, absolutely. So the, the type of object that it is, this, this pyramidal mount, is something that we find um, fairly widely represented. They used to be quite rare, but metal detecting over the past few years has revealed a lot of them. They, they appear to have been the type of object that, that was quite easily lost. If you can imagine them as a, to a toggle, you can imagine that they would sort of drop off of straps and everything. The, the main um, corpus of these objects are made from copper alloy or from silver. Ones that are made from gold and garnets are incredibly rare. We, we have a few more that, that, that turned up in the Staffordshire Hoard, which was another one of these, these great early medieval treasures to be discovered in recent years. Uh, but the ones from Sutton Hoo are, without a doubt, the most deluxe versions of these and it's, it's similar with Sutton Hoo um, across the board really in that you have examples of other types of artifacts that we know from elsewhere but the version at Sutton Hoo is just you know completely by far and away the, the the sort of finest example that we have. Okay so are there any other examples that you can you can give us perhaps? Of these type of artifacts? Yeah or so, yeah something similar maybe yeah. Yeah, so in the Staffordshire Hoard, there's there's a couple of these that are slightly different. I mean, they're they're also inlaid with garnets and they're made from gold. So they're 
they're obviously these very high status versions as well, but they have a slightly different design on them. And it shows that kind of um, uh, ingenious creativity that goes into creating these, these garnet um, designs and the, the, the cell shapes and everything that, that we see. So whereas the Sutton Hu sword pyramids are have this geometric design with these stepped and semicircular garnets, um, the ones from Staffordshire Hoard actually have cells that are, are shaped in the form of two birds facing each other, which is which is quite amazing. And, and what's also interesting about those is it depends what way up you hold the pyramid as to what they look like. So when you hold them one way, they look like these two birds facing each other. But when you flip them over, it actually looks a little bit like a human face. And this really taps into this, this in, in early medieval art, this idea of loving riddles and, and puzzles and the fact that if you really look at something and scrutinise it, you kind of get your reward, you get a kind of moment of, of revelation. And that, that really appears to have been part of the point of the art of this period. That's really clever because I had always associated that with a slightly later period. So I had no mm -hmm. idea that it was going on at, at this time. That's really mm -hmm. quite incredible. Um, <laughs> so are there any other really interesting, well, I'm sure there are, there's lots of exciting pieces, but are there any um, any real standout pieces um, from from the discovery that you're able to tell us a bit more about? Yes, I think the other one that I really would like to talk about, just because it's 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 it's, a, it's got a bit of everything, really. I think it's one of the most I tend to call it the most garrulous object that we have from from the burial. It tells us so much. It's kind of like an encyclopedia. It's like a kind of history. It's like a kind of spiritual guide. It's 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 really incredible, and that's the great gold buckle, as we tend to call it. It's Ooh. it's an enormous um, gold buckle. Uh, it's the largest cast gold object, actually, that we have from early medieval Britain. It's 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 just over 400 grams in weight, so it's incredibly. Wow. I've, I've had the opportunity to hold it in my hands a couple of times, and it, it really is a, a hefty piece of gold. Um, and it's again, as I mentioned, it's it's this example of Sutton Hoo having the best version of of other things that that we find in kind of lesser versions elsewhere. Um, in that the buckles are a kind of um, in this early medieval period, in this early seventh century period, um, a way for for men to display their status as well as weapons. They had really fine buckles, and, and the buckle from Sutton Hoo is, is the finest one that we have from this period. And the more elaborate your buckle, the more important you were, or you wanted other people to think you were. So it was one of these really kind of um, important aspects of, of display at this time. Um, now, this, as I mentioned before, about this this sort of love of riddles and and um, the fact that by looking at this art, you you kind of um, uh, you get your reward if you really scrutinise it. The buckle is probably the best example that we have of, of that kind of um, idea in early medieval art. It's decorated in a, a, a style that we call style two, which sounds a bit dry, but actually it's this really wonderful um, uh, style that, that is characterised by interlacing creatures of all different kinds. We, we see different types of creatures um, kind of repeating throughout the, the repertoire. We have birds of prey, we have boars, serpents, uh, strange creatures that are a bit hard to parallel with, with real species, but they have four legs, so we tend to call them in the trade quadrupeds because we can't sort of get any further than that. But they're often kind of um, combined together in these, these interlacing webs or thickets of, of, of animals' bodies and limbs and, and beaks and claws and things like that. And the buckle is is covered with, with this imagery. Um, on the surface, there are 13 animals. Um, it can be difficult to kind of pick them out, but they are all there, I promise. <laughs> 
and we have snakes and birds and these four-legged creatures on here particularly. But when we when we look at it, it can be completely impenetrable to our eye. It sort of looks like just a, a mass of lacing bodies. But the maker of the buckle has actually given us the kind of key to the code if we're patient enough to sit there and really look at it. So when you sit down with it and scrutinise it, you start to see that actually each one of those animals has been given different markings. So around the edges, we have these four-legged creatures and birds that you can recognise from having very sharp, curved beaks, so they're some kind of bird of prey. Their markings are... Um, kind of gold pellets on a black background that's been created by Niello. So this silver sulfide that creates this black um, inlay that was used on the metalwork of this time. In the middle of the buckle, we have a, a couple of snakes intertwining with each other and their bodies are marked out with black squares on a gold background. So kind of the opposite, sort of the inverse, like a negative of that. And then on the disc of the buckle tongue, we have some more snakes and they're different again with gold squares on a black background. So we have all of these different markings. And once you realise that and you're kind of armed with that information, when you then look at the buckle with sort of fresh eyes, it's almost as if those animals kind of magically resolve into the puzzle for you. And they kind of almost like they're writhing and, and coming to life because you're able to pick out each one of them thanks to this kind of key that the, the maker has given you. So it's this, this art is really kind of visceral and really alive. It's sort of just yeah, as if these animals are, are really there in front of you. It's, it's quite amazing. That is extraordinary, and it makes me really want to come and have a, a proper look at, at the buckle now. <laughs> I think I've, I've seen pictures of it, and um, mm -hmm. I've just sort of admired its beauty, really, but but not taken um, too much notice of, of anything else. So that just sounds mm -hmm. absolutely extraordinary. And do you think that sort of thing, would that have been... Um, I know we, we may not know this, this may be speculative, but do you think that that would have been perhaps something that would have been um, specially commissioned by somebody, um, a.k.a. a king, um, and, you know, with, with that kind of design preference in mind? Or do you think that that's something that perhaps the whoever, whichever goldsmith or um, whoever crafted that, that that may have been some artistic license on their behalf? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And you're right in that we, we don't know a great deal, unfortunately, from this period about workshop practices and, and who's making these things and how they're making them. But the buckle, again, it's it's another one of these, these examples of the buckle being a version of a type of buckle, the, the shape of it, the form of it, the way that it looks is a type of buckle that, that we know from elsewhere. But this one is is unique. There's no other buckle that, that looks like this. So it appears to be sort of an individual commission, whether it was designed, so to speak, by the person that eventually ended up wearing it or whether it was something that, you know, the, the, the maker was given license to, to create uh, is, is an interesting question, whether it was some kind of collaboration. Mm -hmm. We can about all of those things but it, it I, I would imagine I mean I, I think that the craftsperson just just because of the confidence of the design um, the way that it's kind of it's it looks visually impenetrable but is actually incredibly coherent when you really look at it I think that that's that's something that, that could only really have come out of the mind of somebody who was confident with these types of very complicated art styles with these layouts uh, so I think it's something that was probably designed conceived by the person that ended up um, making it I think those things just looked like to me that that they went hand in hand okay and presumably I mean how would this 
piece to have been worn because presumably mm-hmm. given its complexity and given its grandeur, it was something that whoever was wearing it, um, you know, if indeed they wore it whilst alive, mm-hmm. presumably mm-hmm. it was something that you would you would want to be seen. Absolutely. And you've, you've hit upon a, another sort of few really interesting things about the buckle. So I've mentioned how heavy it was, over 400 grams. And um, so that would have required quite a hefty uh, belt in order to sort of hold on to it if, if you were wearing it around your waist. And the, the kind of consensus is that it probably was worn on the body as a buckle. Um, but the, the method of attachment is interesting because one thing I, I haven't actually mentioned is that the buckle is also kind of a box. So it's very thick. And there are photographs on, on the British Museum's website, if you're interested to look, where you can see how deep the buckle is and that there's a plate at the back, like a flap that opens on a hinge and it locks with this kind of quite ingenious triple lock mechanism. And um, so it was able to sort of be opened and closed. And we know that it was opened and closed a lot because we can see evidence that the hinge was actually repaired at some point where it had become weak. And these sorts of box buckles on the continent where they've been discovered in in, um, places like uh, France and southern Germany, parts of Italy and Switzerland, they were known to hold what appear to be um, Christian relics. So you find beeswax, you find remains of plants, some fabric, um, that sort of thing. So what's really interesting about the buckle is that um, it's and something who ship burial in general is that it's it's going into the ground at exactly the point when um, Christianity is starting to uh, spread throughout. England. Uh, so the, the, the sort of traditional beliefs that, that were being practiced beforehand, so we would, you know, old, old times call them pagan beliefs, uh, uh, they were um, starting to kind of um, uh, be replaced progressively by, by Christianity. And there have been a lot of questions over whether the buckles imagery, these creatures are referring to traditional beliefs, or whether they could be some kind of Christian meaning that's combined with that idea of the buckle perhaps being some kind of early reliquary. Um, so it's all very, very interesting as to whether the buckle is, the messages that the buckle is transmitting, whether it's it's relating to sort of old ways or new ways. Um, and the idea also that the interlace could be protective as well. So it's, it's these sorts of ideas of this, this web of um, creatures protecting whatever was held inside the buckle and, and perhaps also secondarily the wearer as well. So it's, it's very interesting to, to muse about the uses of the buckle if it was worn on the body at all, whether it and what the messages were being transmitted um, uh, by wearing the buckle on the body. Um, but that's that's the other thing just, just to say about, about this type of art is that, that from a distance, all you would really see is, is an enormous flash of gold. You wouldn't be able to make out the, the, the intense um, decoration that's on it. You wouldn't be able to disentangle all of that. So the other idea is that this is also very personal, that this is made for somebody who was able to scrutinise it and and contemplate the meanings of it rather than really for for much of an audience okay that's that's very interesting and I think from listening to what you're saying it's quite it's really interesting because it sounds as though um particularly with the buckle but I'm sure with other pieces from from the discovery that they Mm -hmm. they raise as many questions as they answer (laughs) 
That's absolutely right. Yes, there, there are. And um, it's, it's particularly, I mean, I think for this period, we don't have sort of written records, historical texts, that sort of thing. We're right at that kind of, um, we're in the gap really between between the Roman period and then and then the later early medieval period after the, the arrival of Christianity when literacy um, starts to kind of spread again throughout England. So we're right in that gap between, between written texts. So we don't have their records, their descriptions of, of what all of these things mean. Um, so we, we kind of have to sort of um, use the archaeology and, and um, sort of art history kind of techniques to try to understand what, what these things are telling us. But I'm, I'm not really too too bothered about that, if I'm honest. I, I quite like the idea that there's quite a lot of flexibility, a lot of room for interpretation. And I, I don't think there was one meaning for any of these things either. I think the meanings would change with the context, with the person who was looking, who was wearing. Um, and, you know, these these things could be really reframed and reformed um, in the minds of, of the people that were using and encountering them. I love that idea. And and that leads me on to ask you um, something else, which is I, I'm just interested to know if you have a favourite piece from the collection <laughs> or is it impossible to choose? Well, I think people are normally surprised when I say that, yes, I do have a favourite. Um, I know that it's a little bit like um, choosing your favourite child or something like that. <laughs> often think, how, how could you? How could you forsake those other things? But I do have a very good reason. And um, my favourite object from the burial are the shoulder clasps, which are another example of this incredible golden garnet cloisonné work um, that I was talking about with the pyramid at the beginning. Um, And the reason that they're my favourite is that when I was an undergraduate, however many years ago now, a long time ago, um, I I was doing a history degree and I just randomly took uh, a course on early medieval history because it was something I'd never studied anything as old as this before. And I just sort of thought that sounds a bit different let's let's have a go at that and as part of that our professor brought us to the British Museum and showed us the Sutton Hugh ship burial and as we were standing in front of the shoulder clasps he was talking through how they were made and I just had a kind of um yeah a a, a lightning bolt moment I always describe it which is just I could not believe that at this time when there was a date that only had three numbers in it uh, during a period that I was always told was the dark ages nothing interesting happened I just could not believe that these things were were made at a time like that and um it was just completely blew my mind and from that point on I thought this is for me this is what I want to do this is what I want to learn about I have to know more so it, it was the shoulder clasps that did that for me so they're my favorite they're, they're if, if I can describe what they're like, they're very complicated but very beautiful objects. So there are each one, there's, there's a pair of these, and each one of the clasps is made in two halves, and they're kind of rectangular halves with curved ends. And they're made, as I've mentioned, in this, in this garnet clasonet technique. They would have attached to the shoulder of a very heavily padded garment, perhaps linen or wool, and this garment may have been worn over the coat of male armour that was also found in the burial. So it's something to do with this kind of martial symbolism that that we see um, represented widely in the burial. And the models for these are not from England, they're probably from the Roman Empire, and they sort of carry those connotations of Roman power as well. So very complicated messages that are being transmitted by these by these artifacts. A kind of a Roman type of artifact, but the decoration and the symbolism on them is, is very sort of Northern European. So it's this really fascinating blend of messages. But each 
each one of these clasps um, is inlaid with these garnets, um, which, are, as I've mentioned, have been chemically traced to, to Southern Asia, uh, India or Sri Lanka. And each one of these garnets inlaid into the gold cells is, is less than a millimetre thick. So absolutely sort of wafer thin garnets. And each one of those has been backed with a waffled gold foil, as I mentioned earlier. And the, the kind of reasoning behind that was that the light would transmit through the garnet hit the ridges of those gold, gold foils underneath and be reflected back so that the garnet would kind of sparkle and its, its rich red colour would sort of be even more lustrous. Um, it, the, the best analogy I've heard is that it kind of works a bit like a bike reflector. So <laughs> that kind of effect, this, this optical effect is, is absolutely incredible. And um, not only that, do we have these kind of carpets of, of these garnet cells across the shoulder clasps, around the edges of those panels, we have these really intricate interlacing serpents and, and four-legged creatures. Their bodies are like ribbons made from literally slivers of garnets they're so tiny and each one of these animals has a tiny blue glass eye that's like a little dot and it was actually that that detail that specific detail that that really kind of hit me when I was an undergraduate I just just couldn't believe that these things could be made you know it was just absolutely incredible and at the curved end of the clasps we have some more creatures they're these very stylized boars that are um, kind of crossing their bodies are crossing over each other their heads are lowered and they look very stylized but actually the maker despite being limited by the fact that you know this, this person is creating these boars by uh, individual cells they've actually managed to create these anatomical details that are really charming and leave you in no doubt that what's being represented here are boars. So we have their, their little curly tails, we have their tiny tusks, and my favourite um, uh, detail of them is that along their back we have these tiny rectangular garnet cells that, that represent their bristles that are running all the way along their back. So they're absolutely, you know, stylized but also kind of naturalistic as well. It's it's really quite incredible the the achievement in the design of, of these of these artifacts. Absolutely, um, yeah, staggering and humbling the 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 skill that's gone into making these. They sound absolutely beautiful and I'm just so, so intrigued and interested and um, yeah, just, I mean, that's just incredible that those objects were what sparked your interest and, and where it all sort of began for you. And, and now to think that you are in charge of looking after them, <laughs> <laughs> that must be a real dream come true for you. I think that when I relay this story to people, I, I'm always I'm always struck that it, it doesn't sound like it could actually happen in real life. You know, <laughs> encounter with this with this uh, this assemblage that that you know changes changes the course of your life and and changes the course of what you wanted to study and, and makes you you know makes you switch from from one discipline to another. So I, I was interested in history and I, I still am, but then I, I sort of moved across to, to archaeology to study material culture. And so it really had a profound impact on on steering my life course. And then eventually I end up, you know, the, the custodian of, of these objects. And uh, I, I never really lose sight of how immensely privileged I am to, to have that opportunity. It's just amazing. That's a really amazing story. Um, now, Sue, so it has been absolutely fantastic to talk to you, and I am so excited to um, to come and visit the the Sutton Hoo um, display at the British Museum when we're allowed to, of course. Yeah. Um, but for finally, for those listeners who 
um, are also fascinated and they want to find out more about the collection and to find out more about you and your work, where can they look? So I think the best place is is the British Museum's website. We have um, lots of web pages about Sutton Who. We have our, our online collections database as well, which you can find the artifacts and lots and lots of photographs of them. And I've also recently um, done a couple of videos uh, on our YouTube channel. There's a series called Curator's Corner. I've done a video very recently um, about the Sutton Who helmet, where we, we have the immense privilege again of, of being able to take the helmet out of its case, which is incredibly rare occurrence and so we took the opportunity to, to do a video where we get really close up to the helmet which is a was a huge treat a couple of other videos there as well one about the Sutton Hoo sword um, and also for Sutton Hoo more widely the National Trust look after the burial ground at Sutton Hoo like us they're closed at the moment but they have a, a good website with lots of resources and if you're local to the area then you're able to walk in the grounds at the moment as well but hopefully we'll, we'll all be able to return to these places um, soon and and sort of reconnect with these wonderful things because it's been a, it's been a year since I've been into the gallery to, to see the objects too so I'm as keen as anybody I think to, to get back out there. Oh not too much longer hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Oh. oh that's been amazing thank you so much Sue that was just I I can't believe the story of of how you came to I mean that's just amazing I'm really fascinated by that and um yeah I just, I just think that's incredible so um yeah, it's been it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you and yeah just wow <laughs> wow <laughs> I am um, oh no thank you so much I am um, I watched I watched the premiere of the dig the week before it was released and um I I'm a massive fan of Ray Fines, so oh, yes. I, oh, yeah, because I, I know you were involved with that in some way, weren't you? I think that's right. Yes, we had the um, uh, members from the the production design team um, come and look at our amazing archive of photographs from 1939 from the excavations hundreds and hundreds of photographs, and so they used that in their research in order to recreate that extraordinary. Uh, recreation of the of the excavation which is I can tell you is is extremely good extremely close to how it was they really used that information well uh, but we also were able to finds too who um, came and uh, studied Basil Brown's diary and notebook and um, sort of started to build his character with with the help of of those resources oh, wow gosh that's just a, that's amazing that must have been so so great to be involved with that as well it was it was very much fun because I'm a big film fan as well. So for me, the the kind of merging of two of my favourite favourite pastimes is the archaeology and, and the um, and the films as well. So something like this will never happen to me again. I don't think <laughs> there'll never be another another kind of meeting of Sutton Hoo and, and filmmaking. So I've been enjoying <laughs> very much the excitement that's been surrounding the film. Hey, that's absolutely amazing. Did you think? Did you enjoy the film? I did enjoy the film. Yes, I, I've seen it a few times now, and um, every time that that pyramid, which I was talking about earlier, is discovered, um, I, I sort of feel a little bit weepy because for me, it's it's sort of the closest I think that I'll ever get to witnessing this this discovery that that kind of changed changed the course of my life, as I've mentioned. And I think the filmmaker did a really good job with that with that particular scene because um, uh, when when I watched the film, I think for about the third time, I, I, I was listening to it on headphones and I noticed that when Peggy Piggott discovers that gold pyramid the director removes all of the sound apart from her breathing so you're just kind of like in her space hearing her breathe while she discovers this and that kind of 
that moment of discovery where it's just you and the artifacts and nobody else knows yet what you found. It's just you alone with this, this immense discovery is just like what it's like when you find something important. And they really kind of captured that, the essence of, of what that feels like. And um, I really sort of, I really appreciated that. And I think that a lot of archeologists watching were started to pine away for, for being out in the field and, um, and being back excavating. So hopefully, yes, that's that we can all get back to um, yeah hopefully not too much longer <laughs> oh well thank you thanks so much for listening to our first episode of the second series we'll be posting images of some of the objects described by sue in today's episode on our social media pages at history gems pod on both twitter and instagram if you enjoyed this podcast, please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review. Don't forget to tune in for the next episode of History Gems. <laughs>